The following program is part of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations China podcast series. For more information on the National Committee, visit us at www.ncuscr.org or connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, or Weibo. My name is Margot Landman. I am Senior Director for Education Programs at the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. Joining me today on the NCUSCR China podcast is Maria Repnikova, author of Media Politics in China, Improvising Power Under Authoritarianism. Maria is an assistant professor of global communication and director of the Center for Global Information Studies at Georgia State University. She is also a fellow in the National Committee's Public Intellectuals Program. Maria, thanks for taking the time to talk with me today. Thank you for having me. Let's start with a couple of definitions. What is a critical journalist in the Chinese context? And what do you mean when you talk about continuous improvisation? Okay, the hard question straight away. (laughs) So what I mean by critical journalist in China is a journalist who is engaged in investigative, in-depth or editorial, and most recently also online creative writing on contentious social issues. So they present an alternative framing um, to those uh, depicted in official press or you know, party, party-owned press. Um, different ways of understanding social issues, oftentimes touching upon accountability, uh, official accountability, so trying to question how issues have been resolved or managed, and thereby providing a different perspective for the readers in terms of you know, what the state is actually doing. So it's a, it's a somewhat different um, idea of critical journalism than we are experiencing in the West because the contours of it are more narrow. So the critique doesn't go as far as you know, navigating the very top leadership or tackling the system itself, but it does touch upon many important social matters that I wanted to highlight, such as environmental degradation, access to education, uh, food safety crises, and so forth. So these are the kind of issues that are very much the hard issues for Chinese society as well. So those are the issues that critical journalists tend to tackle in their work. And continuous improvisation. And continuous improvisation, um, it's, a, it's the concept is actually guarded improvisation. Uh, that's, that's how I define the relationship between journalists and the party state. But it is continuous over the past years. So it's an ongoing process whereby the officials, at particular central level officials, but also local officials and journalists, they navigate the boundaries for critical journalists through ad hoc kind of creative acts of negotiation. So those acts include various adjustments on behalf of the state uh, when it comes to what's considered sensitive, what's to be censored when, uh, what kind of issues are allowed to be reported on, and also when it comes to journalists who end up you know, going for certain sensitive issues ahead of the censorship ban or outrunning it, outweighting it, or finding different ways to uh, move forward despite the, the political pressures. Mm-hmm. Where do the critical journalists work? Are they primarily at commercial media outlets? Can we find them also at official party outlets? And is there a real distinction between the two when all media is under the supervision, if not control, of the Central Propaganda Department, or as recently retranslated, mm-hmm. the Central Publicity Department? A softer name. Yeah. <laughs> like more attractive, I guess, to some people. Uh, most of them do work for commercialized uh, news outlets, and there is a big difference between those outlets and um, party-owned media, at least until very recently, the party old media didn't do as much investigative reporting that's open to the public. A lot of them would do Neitzan or kind of investigations that are aimed at officials or for officials. So the public doesn't actually see the reports. But the commercialized news outlets are driven by a professionalism, kind of rhetoric and ethics.
ethic. Um, some of them even borrow ethics codes from New York Times and other Western magazines, and they try to live by them. So, for example, when it comes to taking bribes or uh, refusing bribes, rather, <laughs> and uh, surviving this you know very tense environment where journalists are often co-opted into certain matters, um, these kind of reporters would have a lot of a lot more stringent ethics codes that they adopt from like our society or other you know famous newspapers. Um, that said, that in, in recent years we're seeing some shifts in terms of this outlets where critical journalists are hosted. Uh, now we're seeing outlets like Pompeii out of Shanghai that's actually state-owned news enterprise. It's only digital, it's not print, and it's very innovative and it's attracted a lot of talent from commercialized media. So it's not commercialized, but it looks commercialized. It has the look of it, the design of it, um, the kind of reporting they do it really appeals to broader readership, and yet they're state-owned. So we're starting to see kind of different combinations that are really fascinating and creative that are quite distinct from the past. And what's the role of social media in critical journalism in China? Uh, it's a very important role when it comes to improvising with restrictions. Um, there are these several functions I could sort of outline, but one of the first ones is um, to garner information. So just like officials who are constantly watching social media for hot issues, to censor essentially, uh, social media users, journalists, they're looking at what's exciting for them to report on, to outrun the government, and to try to get there sooner. Uh, they're also using social media to get information from other groups or other kind of groups of people. So for example, recently there was a case of uh, I examined of a journalist who hacked into a police circle on WeChat and um, for 40 bucks he got access and he learned all about uh, police thoughts about the media and society and he was fascinated by all their discussions and I don't know if he's going to write a story about it but he was really intrigued that he could get access uh, to a closed conversation of a group that tends to be hostile to the media. So that's just one example of how they get information, you know, very sometimes very discreetly and not always legally, but it's a creative, you know, function. They also use it to mobilize uh, amongst themselves. So a lot of these WeChat circles, they are journalist circles where they share information, they share censored stories, uh, and if something is not possible to report in one region, a journalist could report that um, with the help of someone else who leaked information. So there are all kinds of sharing kind of opportunities there as well. And also to expose restrictions if someone is detained or harassed, that's a way to put pressure on the state to release a journalist. Is it a small enough circle that they all know each other? They sort of know each other, yeah. They usually met in person as well. Uh, they used to meet at investigative journalism conferences that I attended quite a few times. Uh, those have come under pressure in recent years, so there are fewer conferences. But they still get to know each other in the field. They tend to know each other's names and kind of histories and backgrounds. So they're a close-knit community. Mm -hmm. You offer two case studies in the book. One is the media response to the Wenchuan earthquake in Sichuan in 2008, and the other is coverage of a series of deadly coal mine accidents between 2003 and 2012. Could you tell us about the ebbs and flows of media reaction to the earthquake to get us started? Mm -hmm. So how media tackled the, the yeah. earthquake? So the reaction was, um, they, it came in phases. The first phase was just reporting on the actual disaster, and a lot of it was somewhat patriotic in tone, sort of we're in it together, we're obviously mourning victims. It's, a, it's one of those incredibly um, challenging moments in Chinese history, and everyone should come together. So it was sort of in tune with the state narrative. But then as a couple of weeks passed, about two weeks, uh, more critical reports started to come out, the ones I focused on in the book that have to do with the school scandal, the collapse of schools that killed over 5,000 kids. And that's when a lot of um, real attention to accountability uh, was 
um, placed in those reports, basically holding local authorities accountable, local education officials, and being quite critical and thorough in investigating what went wrong and why. And that also was sort of an ebb and flow in terms of one media outlet starting to investigate, then another one kind of following up, and then it concluded with its report by Tsaiding, a long report, and I think it was around June 9th when it came out, much later, and that was the kind of the final sort of stretch. And they looked at more systemic issues as well. And then everything got censored. <laughs> so after that, it was pretty much um, very difficult, not impossible, but very difficult to report on the, on the earthquake. And more than censored, at least one person was detained, people were physically A lot of activists assaulted. were detained. So that points to an important, I think, um, uh, element in the book about the reaction to critical reports from the state, that there's on the one hand kind of a, an appreciation in the sense of we need to fix things, and yes, this is a problem, so there's no ignoring of investigations and public outcry, but the other side of it is extreme censorship and um, including physical harassment, detainment of anyone who tries to challenge the state response. So if you're not happy with those schools being reconstructed, if you want something else, then you're going to get in trouble, which really shows kind of a certain weakness in how these investigations or just accountability generally works in China, not only in the media, but from the public, um, you know, vis-a-vis -vis the state. Mm -hmm. And how did the response to the carnage in the coal mines differ from that of the 2008 earthquake? So there were some, some differences and some similarities. The, the coal mines were repetitive disasters, so there was more time, I think, for the government to deal with it more systematically. And also the disaster didn't attract as much public outcry because a lot of miners you know, who end up suffering or dying in those accidents, they're kind of the lower stratum society. So it doesn't attract as much immediate attention from middle-class Chinese citizens, especially on social media. Um, but the reaction was sort of sometimes at hulk, you know, one disaster at a time, but then towards mid-2000s and late-2000s, there was a systemic policy response, so we have to tackle this issue at the highest levels. But the way they tackled it was very different from the suggestions from the media. So instead of commercializing the mining sector and making it kind of more independent and the state being the supervisor of safety, um, they ended up just building bigger state-owned mines and shutting down all the small mines where a lot of accidents did take place. But the problem with that is that once they became this large state-owned mines, it was really hard. it's really hard for media to supervise them because it's increasingly sensitive, it's a state-owned enterprise, and the way that officials explain it is it's easier for us to kind of supervise from the top down because everyone is afraid to lose their jobs, so it's just safer to just have big coal mine uh, kind of enterprises. But of course, if something does go wrong, then there's a high chance of cover-ups and corruption and all those other things emerging. You keep using the word supervise. Mm -hmm. I don't think we, at least in this country, Would think use of the media as supervising the government. Mm -hmm. Keeping government accountable and honest, yeah. we hope. Sometimes, yeah. But not really supervising. Mm -hmm. How, what's the Chinese context for that? So it, it's a direct translation from Chinese term Yulunziandu, which is supervision through public opinion or public opinion supervision, depending on how you sort of take it. Um, but it doesn't directly address the media, but it's considered to be media policy. So supervision is the direct kind of translation of Tiandu, and Tiandu itself comes up in many other policy documents in terms of inter-party supervision, village elections as a supervision mechanism, the just a giant array of supervision mechanisms that are supposed to mostly focus on local level officials. So I think it comes into play where there's this discrepancy between the central local state and the difficulty of holding local officials accountable or overseeing their implementation of policies. And the term supervision is typically applied in that realm that, you know, the public should supervise those officials, mm -hmm. or which empowers the public, but at the same time empowers central state to appear as responsive and um, benevolent and strong. You compare and contrast critical journalism in the Wen Jiabao, Hu Jintao era, and then the first part of the Xi Jinping era, mm -hmm. first 
few years. Five years, yeah. Assuming that the media landscape has changed under President Xi, what is different and what is the same? So the main difference is, um, the key difference, I guess, is the it's the shortening or kind of the tightening of space for critical reporting. So this is manifested through both uh, intensified repression and controls. There are more mechanisms of control. There are more bodies now involved in regulating the media. There's also more extensive repression. So in the past, we used to see targets as largely dissidents or those individuals who are completely against the system. But in the last couple of years, we're also seeing detentions amongst the so-called, I would say, critical intellectuals kind of group of people who are also now kind of worried uh, for their safety and longevity of their work. I think that's a big shift that it sort of went to the mainstream, I would say, or kind of the semi-mainstream of public intellectuals. Um, but at the same time, if you think about the dynamics between journalists and officials, those journalists who still pursue some facets of critical journalism, they haven't changed that much, I would say. There's still significant preemptive censorship. There's still significant fluidity in terms of how media is managed, despite the fact that there are more rules and regulations. They're applied in an ad hoc manner. And that's because sensitivity of issues is not something the party can control. That's up to the people. Uh, how much they discuss something, that's what becomes sensitive. So as a result of the increasing speed of social media interactions and the expansion of that, it's harder and harder, I think, for officials also to kind of be in touch with public opinion. So as such, they keep you know, negotiating what's allowed um, from their perspective, and journalists keep pushing back and finding ways to report. So the creativity is still there, and um, the kind of adaptation to one another is still there. And there's still a consultative kind of element that journalists play within the system. If we think about the anti-corruption campaign, and a lot of investigations that Tsai Xin did and Feng Pai are tackling high-level officials that are already under you know, oversight from the central state, they're already being scrutinized, but they're sort of invited to help, so to speak, to scrutinize them you know, to the largest extent. and. Uh, release all their dark secrets to the public. Mm -hmm. And journalists did phrase it in a sense that we were invited to help. Those were the words, which is fascinating because, again, it's this collaborative element. And they're not fully satisfied with that, of course, because they would rather be the ones finding the case in the first place. But it's better than nothing. So it's still interesting to be able to engage in such a high-level investigation. Mm -hmm. So a lot of same dynamics, but a smaller space. Um, so the boundary of the kind of the red zone, the gray zone boundaries I put it in the book, now it seems like the red zone is expanding into the gray zone. Mm -hmm. And it remains to be seen, you know, how long that continues for and what issues are kind of, are now trapped in the red zone as opposed to this fluctuating gray zone. And then you compare and contrast critical journalism in the Soviet Union under Gorbachev and in Russia under Putin and how that those two periods differ from or are similar to the China case. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure, yeah, they're, they're quite different from the China case, and I think that's why the contrast is important in some ways showcasing the uniqueness of the Chinese dynamics, which we often underappreciate if you only work on China. But looking at the Russia case, for instance, the relationship between critical journalists and the state, it's more of kind of disconnected, uh, tense cohabitation, as opposed to this fluid collaboration. So it's sort of like uh, the, the band of the orchestra and the players are in complete disconnect from one another. So it's, the music is obviously not turning out so great. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> journalists are existing in what some Russian scholars refer to as islands of press freedom, where they're allowed to do a lot more than Chinese reporters as far as the critique goes, but they're not being listened to and they're not being cared about. So they feel themselves as being quite isolated in, Chi in Chinese, in Russian society, in the Russian political system. And uh, the state tends to kind of tolerate some of those critiques as part of image-making function, as a facade of democracy and pl pluralism, as opposed to some kind of governance or supervision role. That's something that's not discussed in Russian discourse which is really interesting. And then the management, the kind of negotiations, they happen in much more um, kind of occasional basis as opposed to this routine 
uh, interaction or improvisation, there is more of a post-factum coercion. So once a lot of reports you know, are out there and the government seems to be under pressure, whoever is trying to challenge the journalist, they, they end up um, deploying all sorts of tools to revenge uh, the reporter. And oftentimes it's really gruesome tactics of murder or you know, beatings and so forth, which again, we don't see to such an extent in, in the Chinese case. So there's this kind of interesting dimension where in some ways Chinese journalists play a more democratic function within you know, an authoritarian system than Russian journalists. And Russia is supposed to be a more democratic system. So there's kind of counterintuitive, interesting, interesting contradiction very interesting there. contradiction, which I think for some people is hard to sort of grapple with because Russian journalists do go further in challenging Putin. But as far as their role goes, how far they can go in actually mobilizing the public opinion or being members of that society is a, in a broader sense, it's, it's much more limited. So that's the the Russia conscious and the Soviet Union is, is the the fear of China is the anti model because the glasnost period opened up the media to an extent that it became a force and for political change exactly and and it's often discussed as the most sensitive catastrophic scenario for for Chinese leadership so I was looking at that and trying to understand how Gorbachev sort of allowed that to happen and it seems like one of the reasons was that he went too far in that opening and didn't stick to this kind of guarded improvisation approach that Chinese officials are you know, engaged in this kind of step-by-step constant negotiation with journalists requires a lot of resources, time, and um, attention on behalf of officials. And Gorbachev just sort of opened up the space and didn't pay close attention to how things were unfolding until they went too far. And journalists that were interviewed at the time, they basically reported that when we heard that he said nothing, we just went further and further. So the doors kept opening and it was extremely exhilarating moment. And a lot of mistrust for the system came out, both through their reports and through public opinion. All this still kind of hidden fears and um, sen- sen- sentiments about sort of their dis- anti-system sentiments came out into the open. And I think that's exactly the fear of the Chinese state, that if something like this would happen, a lot of this deeply held sentiments would also just unfold themselves and translate into action. So that's the anti-scenario. I <laughs> could go on and on. I have lots more questions, but oh. unfortunately we've come to the end of our time. Thank you very much for speaking. Thank with you for me having today. me.